We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello and welcome to Patented, a podcast all about the history of invention from History Hit with me, Dallas Campbell. It's a special episode today as we're diving into, well, the oldest invention ever. It's not really an invention at all. Discovery, I suppose. Well, let's call it an invention. The invention of fire. Today, I'm joined by Richard Wrangham. He's one of the leading anthropologists of our times and has spent a lifetime studying chimps, other primates, to try and understand the deep roots of human behaviour. He actually began his research career with the world-famous Jane Goodall in 1970, and his book Catching Fire is a classic. It's about his theory that the use of fire to cook food explains the changes seen in our body, most crucially the ability to grow bigger and bigger brains. Absolutely fascinating, an incredibly interesting episode. Enjoy. Richard, I remember reading your book. I think it must have been pretty soon after it came out, maybe oh, no, 2010, maybe? Or something. I was around about that. I remember reading a New Scientist review about it, I think it was, thinking, oh, that sounds really interesting. And I read it, and it was really interesting. <laughs> so I was rooting around in my bookcase, and I still had a copy. So anyway, what a pleasure to have you with us. Okay, here's my confession. I always get my homos mixed up, so I never, I never know quite where to start or how it all works, because it's not really my field. So the invention of fire. Well, not really the invention of fire, the ability to control fire and be able to... Yes, right. Your thesis is this is the kind of prime technology 1.0 that really made us human. And so we'll talk about all the different ways that that happened. But maybe just to start, can you just sort of tell us, when are we talking about? When did this, when was this Rubicon cross that led us to use fire like this? Well, I think the way to get at this is to think about human anatomy. And basically for the last let's say 2 million years, you know, you might say it's 1.9, but let's call it 2 million years, we have had the essential body shape and size that we do now. So if we went back 2 million years and we got out of our DeLorean, we'd recognise, I mean, sure, fashions might be different, clearly, but we'd look pretty much the same. They'd be bulkier in some ways, a bit more robust, a bit stronger limbed, a bit more like wrestlers than the average person. 
you know, one way to think about it is that they could probably pick clothes off the peg in a Main Street store. <laughs> Without having to go to, was it Big and Tall? There was that kind of <laughs> catalogue for big people. Well, before then, you know, they were look, <laughs> looking more like chimps standing upright. You know, really massive shoulders and long arms and so on, designed for climbing. So two million years ago, that's Homo sapiens still, is that right? No, no, this is just the genus Homo. For the last two million years, we've been the genus Homo. Okay. And so genus is the Homo part, and then the species is the sapiens part. There's lots of other Homos. So there's a rack of Homos with sapiens, but there are other... A bunch of Homos, that's right. Okay, okay. And it starts with Homo erectus. Erectus referring to the, the stance of the body. So we became erect in ways that chimpanzees are not. And this was the moment at which we committed ourselves to being on the ground rather than being able to swing about in the trees. But was it because we'd been using fire and the fire made us not have to climb trees, we could suddenly be on the ground? Like what came first, the being on the ground or the fire bit, if you see what I mean? I'm sure it was the fire that came first, because until you can sleep on the ground with the protection of fire, then uh, it's just much too dangerous. You would have slept in the trees at night, just like chimpanzees and gorillas do. And it was only once we had fire that we were able to come down and have one of these multiple changes that make us human. But how do we know that fire was so important at that point? That was all a secondary consequence of the things that happened with the diet. So, you know, for me, this whole story starts with something that it took us a long time to realize, which is that although it is perfectly possible for people to eat raw food and commit ourselves to eating raw food, if we are living in an urban environment in which we can get our foods, our seasonal foods from around the world at any time, and we can use electric machines to pound them bits uh, and make them digestible. And what, what has emerged recently is that we cannot survive on raw food in the wild. So that makes us you know, completely different from every other animal. And it means that we are committed to using fire. Is there kind of archaeological evidence of a kind of change when this sort of changed happened? And also, when we're talking about fire, are we talking about, you know, in my imagination, I'm imagining people rubbing sticks together, making fire, going, oh, Eureka, look what we've done. That's not how it is, is it? It was, it was fire naturally. I think you've got to say that it could have been thousands, hundreds of thousands of years before people learned to make fire. I mean, it probably wasn't, but making fire is, is really not part of the equation. All you have to do is to be able to capture fire. And once you've captured it, once the population has captured it, you have to nurture it. You know, making fire is quite difficult. I mean, there are places in which it's quite difficult for women to do it at all. And even for men, you know, I've watched boys desperately trying to make fire in the way that uh, you are supposed to be able to do it. And they can't do it. It's only when they're strong enough to be able to, you know, this is when you're twirling a... Or one stick into another. I tried to do it. I watched a whole thing. I watched a Ray Mears program once, or maybe Bear Grylls. I get them mixed up, you know, of how to do it. I, I still can't do it. I, I try and do it, and I think, oh, to hell with this. Yeah, no, it's not easy at all. That's why we invented matches, so I didn't have to go through this rigmarole. <laughs> I mean, the reason I mentioned about uh, the, the fact that it's difficult is that even with some hunters and gatherers in recent times, there are stories of how they lost fire for a bit, you know, big rainstorm comes through, and then what happens? And the answer is that they're very sensitive to the smell of smoke. 
and, and signs, you know, like there's a lightning storm over there, and they can go 20 miles to find fire. And of course, normally, if you let your fire go out in a camp, then you can go and get it from another camp. I'm just trying to get a sense of this of this sort of changeover, how quick it was. Was there a kind of a Wednesday where someone suddenly said, oh, wow, you know that kind of hot stuff, that's really good for scaring away animals or keeping us warm or cooking things? I'm just kind of trying to understand the kind of play of events and, that might have happened. Well, I mean, I think that you've got to think of a couple of stages, you know, so our pre-homo ancestors have got okay. the name Australopithecines. So that's the one I can never pronounce. And I always skim over it when I read it in books. You shouldn't skim over it because it lasts about six million years. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> it. I don't, I don't mean skim over it intellectually. I just mean that the pronunciation of it, when I sort of read it in my mind, I kind of trip over lots of those middle letters. <laughs> yes, quite. No, it is a bit of a mouthful. But th- these were animals that certainly w- would not have been using fire. And so there's this big change around two million years ago from Australopithecines to Homo. And I think the way to think about it is that for some time uh, after they discovered how to use fire, these Australopithecines, they were not committed to it in the way that means that you absolutely have to have it. They would have enjoyed it, you know, so maybe for half a million years that they would be using it. And the ones that were using it best and most would be the ones that had the most energy that had the most time, that had all sorts of advantages over their cousins. At about, uh, you know, something around two million years ago, a population arose that was committed. And the reason we can say they were committed is that they had the anatomy that signals the use of cooked food at the expense of using raw food. And that's because their guts became small, their teeth became small, That meant they could use cooked food really efficiently, but they couldn't use raw food in the same way as our cousin apes. And we can say that because, you know, our guts are about two thirds of the size that you need to be in order to be able to process raw food efficiently. So they've given up that. That change in physiology that you've described, that's a result of the the using of fire, of cooking food. Food becomes more potent as it were so we have le- we have to spend less time collecting it and digesting it and, and and that kind of stuff is that why the physiological change or was there another change and the, and the two things coincided no i think i think that that was the physiological change i mean that once you start cooking then you can get much more energy out of your food it gives you access to a wider set of foods it means you can spend uh, much less time eating I mean, this is one of the astonishing things, you know, that, that uh, if you look at how much time humans spend eating compared to the amount of time that we should spend eating, to judge from all the other animals, we should be spending uh, something like seven or eight hours a day just chewing. And so suddenly all that time is freed up and we can do things like our guts shrink because there's less digestion and also our brains grow and our brains grow too that's right crikey it's a neat trick isn't it why you'd think other animals would have cottoned onto this by now this whole cooking food thing i mean i guess domestic pets yeah i mean it's not easy for dolphins but um (laughs) no that's (laughs) they're they're doing pretty good actually the dolphins they're doing pretty well without it but uh, but that's right well it's the raw fish that you know hey sushi yeah that's one of the things we can eat reasonably well yeah you know, this physiological change that comes about because we can cook food. Maybe you could just explain a little bit about what happens to food that gives it such an advantage by being cooked. 
basically it predigests it. And one of the big foods to think about is starch. So, you know, humans are, are hugely dependent on starchy foods, whether from roots or seeds or whatever. And if we eat starchy foods without it being cooked, such as the wheat grains in the bread that you were thinking of as uncooked, you know, but if you just had a lot of wheat grains, then the majority of them uh, would pass through your small intestine without being digested at all. But the process of preheating, of, uh, you know, of cooking them, means that the chains of starch become opened up and available for our enzymes to digest in the small intestine. So there are two big changes uh, as a result of these sorts of processes. One is that the food is more digestible, meaning that a greater proportion of it is actually used by your body. And the other is that the cost of digestion, which is a significant energetic cost, is enormously reduced. So instead of 25 different physiological processes that are involved in breaking down your food, all of them being very costly, some of them are pretty much avoided and, uh, and others uh, are much cheaper. And so costly organs like brains, is that the reason why our brains are so much bigger than other primate brains? Well, yes. I mean, it's a very predominant theory that one of the advantages of cooking is that it enables so much energy to be available compared to eating raw food, that we can afford to invest more in highly expensive organs. And specifically, we're investing less in our guts, and that's kind of traded off and becomes uh, more energy available for the brain. What about, I mean, something like a gorilla or bonobo or something like that? Like how much time and energy are they spending eating food, gathering food in the wild and then digesting it? Like the fueling process, how much of their day is taken up by that compared to us? Yeah, gorillas, it's about eight hours. Crikey. You know, so if, if you're a National Geographic movie producer and you say, let's go off and watch apes doing fascinating <laughs> things. Yeah. You, know, you have to wait a long time because, because you know, a chimp is spending six hours a day chewing. This is your work. I know you used to work with Jane Goodall, who's famous for filming apes for National Geographic, didn't you? I did, I did. I, I worked with Jane for, you know, years ago. Um, and then I started my own study along similar lines. So basically all day, well, I suppose, you know, you watch cows or horses grazing, they're pretty much eating all day. Yeah, big animals are eating most of the day. And, um, and if they're not eating, then you know what they're doing? They're resting and digesting. Oh, I thought you were going to say something else there, but, but yeah, resting. Resting. <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah, <laughs> no, well, I mean, you know, it's not surprising that the average duration of a copulation in, in a chimpanzee is between seven and eight seconds. <laughs> there you go. That's interesting. That's an extra bonus fact for you. So, okay, so, okay, well, that's a really interesting comparison. Something like a gorilla, that comparison. So the difference in body shapes between us and a gorilla, can we say is due to the fact that we use fire so bigger brains smaller guts is that are those the two main changes yeah, yeah. and, and uh, smaller teeth smaller chewing teeth and smaller mouths and of course the significant thing about those anatomical changes is that it means that we can go back in time and say okay when did we get these smaller teeth and smaller guts and that, that that's why we can pin this to about two million years again i just want to ask about the archaeological record how do we know this stuff you know, I can understand the, the sort of evolutionary biology theory behind it all, but actually, is there physical evidence? Like, do we find old fires and old meat bones or whatever it might be? The record for fire has not matched the biological and anatomical record. 
So when I got into this game about um, 20 years ago, something like that, it was said that the earliest use of fire was about quarter of a million years. Now it's gone back to about a million years, uh, pretty confidently. You know, most people would accept that evidence. And there are some people who are finding evidence in East Africa going back to uh, more like one and a half million years. So, uh, you know, what I'm seeing is that, that the evidence just keeps pushing back. Uh, and, um, and I hope that I'm alive long enough to see it reach uh, two million years ago. If I was a Homo erectus wandering around two million years ago and there was a fire, I could understand its properties of keeping me warm or the fact that it might scare away other animals, which meant I didn't have to climb trees and I could sleep on the ground. But where, where does that idea of like, oh, I know, that lump of meat that I'm normally eating raw, I'm going to suddenly chuck in the fire and it's going to taste better. Like, how did that leap happen? My guess is that uh, really the first reason that people got interested in fire was because it made the food taste better. Obviously, it is speculative as to what were they doing near a fire in the first place. And I suppose you could say that it was to be warm. But my guess is that they found that uh, probably meat, but maybe roots, when left against a burning tree, trees sometimes catch fire and, um, and you can have it burning for several days, they just discovered that it, it tasted nicer. And part of the reason we can say that is that all the animals that have been tested so far, you find that they like cooked food more than raw food. You know, we're not talking about high cuisine here. Hey, barbecues, we love barbecues for good reasons, I suspect. Yeah, but I mean, even barbecue is pretty complex, you know. I've been in hunter-gatherer camps where you see small kids just, you know, they've got a piece of meat and they just leave it in the ashes for a bit and just warm it. And that just makes it easier to chew and, uh, and pleasanter to chew. You know, have you eaten raw moot? What, what, raw moot? <laughs> raw meat, excuse oh, me. Oh, raw meat. Have you, have you tried? I have. I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, steak tartare, for example, or carpaccio, or all, all those sorts of raw meats, or raw fish, for that matter. Yes, but they're already highly processed. Well, I suppose that's what it is, yeah. I've, I've never, I've never, I rarely catch a kind of wildebeest and wrestle it in central London and then just go for it. So, the thigh. <laughs> I am a meat eater. I, I'm not a vegetarian or anything. I mean, I do like eating meat, so I know that's not fashionable at the moment, but hey. Well, you know, it's quite likely that the ancestors, even before fire, were pounding the meat to make it better. And uh, you know, how exactly they discovered that when left against a burning log or something like that, you know, or even not even sort of lively burning log, but just a hot log, then it tastes better. Who knows? Just give us an idea of the sort of diet as well. When we talk about cooked food, I mean, we're talking about meat because when I think of cavemen and in inverted commas, they're normally wearing, in my imagination, some kind of leopard skin loincloth and they've got a club in one hand and a giant steak like the Flintstones, you know. But presumably <laughs> they didn't look like the Flintstones. And what was this kind of diet? Was it meat or was it grain-based or was there vegetables? Or I mean, the standard theory is that uh, there was a mixture of basically meat and tubers, you know, meat and potatoes. And uh, so if you now look at uh, African hunter-gatherers, then what you find is that they are, are eating that sort of diet. It's a diet in which the most important thing in some ways is the staples because those are the things that keep you going even on days when you just can't find the meat. So the meat tends to be more of the luxury and, and uh, in a camp in which no meat is coming in, they are surviving 
but uh, when you bring the meat in, then all of a sudden everyone dances that night and there's jollity and, and happiness. But the real question in terms of survival of a population is probably how are they doing with their tubers? So the cooking of the tubers would have been fantastically important because the reason that cooking matters for them is because they're starch rich and eating raw starch is, uh, is not a way to go. We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. This idea of controlling fire, I just want to get a sense as, as well of kind of what we mean by that. So back in the day, this idea of fires would spontaneously start, and I, I could imagine people interacting with those kind of fires. Was there a big change when Homo erectus suddenly could light a fire, like whipped out a match or, or rubbed two sticks together? That idea of like being able to control fire, like where does that fit into the story? Well, I mean, for me, the control is not the question of uh, making it, as I said. Now, I think what you've got to be thinking about is uh, the ability to keep it going. And it's it's very striking to see the way that hunter-gatherers who are you know, just dependent on their own abilities and can't ring up anybody for help, they find it absolutely vital to keep fire going. And one way they do it is to bank a fire so that uh, they go off from camp during the day. They leave it banked and they get very cross with anybody who fails to leave it banked sufficiently that it's easy to blow up and get into a fire in the evening. And the other thing you can do is just take a smouldering log. You know, many Australian groups, the story that they have is that they have to keep a, a log with them because the gods need to be placated so that whenever you stop and have an activity during the day, you can start a fire immediately. Just your flaming log is a source of fire. It was no, not a flaming log, but just a gently burning log. And, of course, the action of holding it and swinging it as you walk along uh, gives it enough oxygen to keep it going. You know, very clear morality, really, associated with keeping the fires going. And that would mean the important thing. Like the cultural importance of fire as well. It's, like, it's not just that, OK, it keeps you warm, protects you from animals, it cooks your food, which led to a physiological change in us, but also culturally fire just has taken on this as you say, placating the gods, gods are really high maintenance, you know, so something as important as fire becomes central in, in, in the rituals that define us as humans as well. Well, that's right. And of course, you know, the way as a biologist you would think about it is that the rituals have evolved because fire is so, so important. 
this is a really dumb question, I'm sure. So I apologize. Why, why is it that gorillas, bonobos haven't cracked fire? Like given how fundamental it is to us, why is there no other animal like figured it out? Yeah, I don't think it's a dumb question at all, but um, chimps, uh, you can see them as sort of being pretty close to it. So they have the ability to, uh, once they appreciate about the value of cooked food uh, in captivity, people have done experiments to show that they will take raw food and they will basically cook it. They will, you know, organize the next few minutes after being given a raw food to be able to, um, you know, they'll inhibit themselves from, from eating it raw in order to be able to take it somewhere where they will end up with a bit of cooked food. There's a bonobo, uh, you know, the close relatives of the chimps, that was, I don't know if you could say taught, but through a process of going out into the woods with uh, Sue Savage Rambar, who, who worked with this bonobo, uh, Kanzi, Sue would say things like, um, can you go and get a, a pan and some wood uh, and here are some matches? And, uh, and he would light a fire and cook some sausages. So they, you know, they're, they're not very far away from it. No, but they, that's kind of cheating, though, because he had sort of human help <laughs> telling no, exactly. you. No, that, no, I mean, they haven't done it, and, and I'm sure they're not going to do it yet in the wild. It's a short jump from lighting fires to chat GPT. In the world of evolution, that's right. Uh, you know. But, of course, one of the it's just a very practical problem is that all these other apes, they live in rainforest, and you know, it's not that easy finding the, the tinder. It's kind of funny, but I have wondered about that question of thinking like these, these kind of eureka moments. And I, it was a Werner Herzog film I was watching the other day, and he mentioned the same question. And I was like, yeah, why is that? Like, why, okay, why haven't animal, other animals cracked fire? And why haven't other animals cracked using other animals? Like, why do you never see a chimp riding a goat? That kind of thing. The things that we just totally take for granted that we might do. Well, I mean, one of the problems is the one we mentioned earlier, which is they don't have time to experiment. You know, their lives are very full. We are, we are saved an enormous amount of time. We, we are saved something like six hours a day in which we can afford to do things like go hunting uh, for uh, high gain but high risk activities. So, you know, you can, you can go hunting for, for three or four days and not get anything. But if somebody is cooking, and by the way, you know, it becomes pretty patriarchal, the whole system, because the men go off and the women uh, are spending their time cooking and making sure there's an evening meal available. Suddenly we've got all this time on our hands. We can do things like celebrity bake-off, invent artificial intelligence. Domestication of animals. Domestication of animals, that kind of stuff. It's pretty good, isn't it? In the kind of world of technology, it was interesting, actually, the head of Google, whose name I've suddenly has left my brain, you know, he was, he was talking about artificial intelligence. And he said, actually, this transcends fire in terms of useful things that humans have done. I, I don't know, where, where would you put fire on the technology usefulness scale? I mean, I think it's, it, it creates everything about humans. I mean, we, we could not be human without fire. And it makes us, it puts us into a completely new world from, uh, from other animals. It enables us to, to modify the whole environment. You know, I mean, many people, uh, hunters and gatherers, burn, you know, deliberately burn the environment in order to create fresh grass or chase the animals, whatever. And to change metals and to process metals and to build things and to create steel and to create the world around us. I often think if another planet, if flying saucers existed, for example, 
and we caught a flying saucer, they don't exist. But anyway, if they if they did exist, and it was made out of metal, you must you'd know that it came from a planet where they'd cracked fire. Therefore, the planet must have enough oxygen to create fire, but not too much oxygen where you couldn't control fire. It would be similar kind of planet to us. I mean, the, the percentage of oxygen in our atmosphere is really important because if you have more than that, then the whole place blows up or burns down. And if you don't have enough, then you can't get it going. So it's quite a small window. I mean, they, they have to have some kind of system of acquiring energy beyond the traditional animal system of just digesting it, because it's only when you can use this external sources of energy that you have enough to be able to do something really creative. And even if you know it wasn't an oxygen-rich planet, even if it was dependent on some entirely different uh, chemistry underlying their life form uh, involving you know silicon rather than carbon they would still have to have a, a source of energy and it may be through some other kind of radiation uh, not fire but some way of using external sources of energy for your advantage changes you into a, a new kind of species hey richard what are you up to at the moment i mean you know you wrote this book 10 years ago 15 years ago something like that Tell us what you're up to now. Are you still thinking about this, or is this a subject that you've kind of slightly parked and moved on to other things? That was a a book uh, thinking about the origin of the genus Homo two million years ago. And now what I'm thinking about is the origin of the sapiens, uh, Homo sapiens, which happened about 300,000 years ago. And and I'm pretty sure I know what was going on there. And again, it was kind of a new idea, actually. Amazing. What was the new idea? Or are you allowed to, or is it a secret? No, no, no. I mean, I I wrote a book called The Goodness Paradox, uh, which is sort of part one, and I'm working on part two at the moment. And uh, But the essential story is that we became the only species that is capable of executing each other. And that as a consequence of that execution, we changed in all sorts of ways. Is this, is this a kind of moral thing? Is this, I heard a thing you talking about, the, you know, getting rid of the sort of alpha male and the kind of the beta males inheriting the earth and we become more cooperative and, and that's what makes us... The, the, you know, there are many ways in which um, humans cooperate like other animals, but one way in which we cooperate rather differently from other animals is specifically in executing those who we as a group don't like. I think what this did was to, to change our species in radical ways. And and one way in which it changed our species is it made us more like domesticated animals. And how how did it make us more like domesticated animals? The selection processes that are involved in creating a domesticated animal is reducing its aggressiveness. And choosing the traits that you like, and then then those traits come through. Well, the important thing is choosing against the traits you don't like, and those are aggressiveness. The particular kind of aggression that is being selected against and chosen against in domesticated animals is called reactive aggression. It's the losing your temper type. And humans have uh, incredibly low propensity to lose their temper, to show reactive aggression, compared to chimpanzees and bonobos. So chimpanzees go ape, literally ape. You got it. And humans don't. Okay, this is a dumb question. Is that why we see such bad behavior on social media and people just generally attacking each other in kind of slightly catty ways. Those things that we see in others that we don't like, we react against. Well, I think it makes a lot of sense. And of course, the reason that we can do that is that it's anonymous. Um, Because uh, if you attack someone like that within the context of your group, then that creates a great 
problem and um, you'll be shouted at and uh, regarded as immoral and, and so on. Uh, but uh, give the chance to uh, be able to say this without anybody getting back at you and you can express all these dark thoughts. And there we are. Hey, uh, you, you've got the best job ever, I think. Your area of study is absolutely fascinating. Well, you know, we live in such a fascinating time intellectually. I, mean, I, I think we're in a, the throes of a, an intellectual philosophical revolution um, that will permanently change the way that we understand ourselves. And, you know, Darwin initiated it, but it's still going on, and it'll go on for several decades more, but we're in the middle of it now. And, you know, how great is that? How, how exciting is that? You know, our cosmology, our understanding of, of the nature of the world, uh, you know, how we're, we're changing from myths, untestable myths, and whether we're thinking about astrophysics or primatology, you know, we are understanding the universe and our place in it. Now, of course, you know, in some ways that's terrifying because it means that we don't have the securities of the myths that we uh, had in the past. No, we're painting the gods further and further into tiny and tiny little corners as we, as we explore the universe. But actually, the interesting, you know, the funny thing is, I'm always amazed at these new changes that we see. So wonderful, you know, stories in astrophysics and th this whole thing being revealed and stuff that we didn't know suddenly we know, and you're amazed by it for about 20 minutes, and then you get really used to it again. I'm amazed at the human brain's capacity for getting used to ridiculous things. Like last week, I was amazed at ChatGPT, for example. Now I just take it totally for granted in about 20 minutes. You know, I, I'm just amazed at how humans, we're kind of reluctant to change and we're amazed, but then we're and then we, we, we kind of settle into things pretty quick. And then the next amazing thing comes along. Yeah, well, I mean, you were asking about uh, uh, how, what's the comparison between fire and AI mm. in terms of its impact on human life. Yeah. I think we can't say yet because AI, uh, if we indeed become cyborgs uh, and, uh, and chips are planted in all our brains and, and all of a sudden our own strategic goals are being affected by the strategic goals of the machines that we are interacting with, then that does sound like uh, something of a totally new species. But for, for the moment, I'll go with fire. You know, if you were an astrophysicist, I'd ask you this question, what's the big thing in your field? And you'd tell me about, or perhaps it's about discovering life on other planets, or maybe it's discovering the nature of dark matter or whatever it might be, some fundamental about the universe. But in... in Evolutionary biology, what's the, or anthropology, what's the holy grail of, of knowledge that you'd like to find in your lifetime? Well, I mean, this is maybe, sounds small beer to you, but, um, you know, I think that the way to understand the evolution of our species, Homo sapiens, is to understand about the way in which aggression, reactive aggression was controlled and how we became similar to a domesticated animal. And the preliminary evidence is that the genetics underlying becoming a domesticated animal is the same as the genetics comparing Homo sapiens with Neanderthals. I think the interesting thing that's just a, it's like we've domesticated ourselves. That's the kind of crazy, that's the crazy thing, isn't it? Yeah, no, I, th I think what happened is that, that uh, language became sufficiently sophisticated that people could get together and form conspiracies to get rid of the bullying alpha male who was keeping all the meetings for himself and uh, keeping all the other males down. And that once language enabled individuals to make these conspiracies and say, okay, we're going to get him, then nobody could afford to be the big bully 
in the small group because then they would get killed in their turn. All of a sudden, everybody has to conform to the wishes of this alliance of males. And that is where morality comes from. Morality is a sense of right and wrong. The sense of right means uh, doing what the male alliance wants you to do, and wrong is doing what they don't want you to do. So we become a conformist, cooperative, grouping species subject to the wishes of uh, a domineering set of males. In that story, language is a facilitator of that. But suddenly, our village has expanded globally because we have this technology. And are we turning into this kind of monoculture of conformists around certain ideas that become the standard idea, even though they may be bollocks? It's unclear exactly how we will sort this out. You know, I mean, they we're at this terrifying transition where uh, groups have been getting bigger and bigger. If we don't reach a single group, a world government, then we're going to have continuing tensions between enormously well-armed uh, and incredibly powerful groups. So it's very difficult to see how that's a sustainable uh, system. I mean, evolutionarily, it's just not sustainable. So somehow you've got to get to a point where we can uh, escape the move to war. I just read the Thucydides trap, and I can't remember who it's by now, which is about exactly that, about our predisposition to always end in war uh, as, as, as cultures start to approach dominant cultures, things generally end badly. <laughs> Whether or not it really helps to understand what morality means in terms of biology and, uh, and how we got to this position, whether or not that helps us in terms of the politics of the people who are making the decision that affect us all, it seems quite unlikely. I mean, Putin, whether or not he was a sophisticated evolutionary biologist uh, or, or not, would probably not affect his decisions to go into Ukraine. No. God, I, crikey, this is taking us down a hole. I've got all, all kind of questions I want to ask you about this now, but I'm going to, I'm going to pause. Fire, it keeps us warm. It stops us being eaten by lions. It cooks our food. We can use it miraculously to manipulate our physical world, and it creates conspiracy theories. <laughs> there you go, right. <laughs> it's fascinating. I love talking to you. It's t terrific to be reminded of these ideas again, and a pleasure to have you on the show. So thank you very, very much. Come on again, and we'll talk about the origins of conspiracy theories. Great. Fun to talk to you. So there we go. Thank you very much to Richard. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, there's plenty more where that came from. And don't forget, of course, to tell all your friends, do all the things that algorithms like you to do. You know the drill. Thank you very much for your company. I'll see you next time. We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. 
the nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code PATENTED at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.